0: cocktail college is brought to you by kettle one vodka certain brands out there certain vodka brands want you to believe that these spirits should be flavorless and odorless and they achieve this profile through multiple runs of distillation in column stills they actually celebrate this thing they market it but you're a discerning drinker cocktail college listener aren't you and you know that vodka should have character should have subtle character And that arrives from the base ingredient and the production technique. In the case of Kettle One, we're talking about a wheat base made using a blend or a mix of pot and column still distillation. And what you get there is character, but subtle character, so that it's going to enhance but never overpower your favorite vodka cocktails, your martinis, your Cosmos. Kettle One stands so firmly behind this production technique that on every single bottle, there's an invitation for you, the drinker, to visit them at their Netherlands distillery. And hey, why wouldn't they? They've only got 330 years family distilling experience right there. So it's understandable that they back themselves. And you should back them too, listener. You know what you should do? You should pick up a bottle and head over to kettleone.com to learn more. Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pairs Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders.
1: There's a certain elegance about it that kind of, like you can hear Frank Sinatra playing in your head, you know? It's a cocktail that all others aspire to. It's Fred Astaire in a glass. It takes you back, you know, it transports you, and, and I love that time. That's right, folks,
0: here we are. It is, of course, the Vodka Martini. I'm willing to wager a few of you Cocktail College listeners might have thought we'd never arrive here. After all, it's just cold vodka, isn't it? You know, I don't think that statement could be further from the truth. And I'm not saying that to be some kind of contrarian. I think there's an overall elegance to this drink, and it lies in its subtlety. Granted, it doesn't have as much flavor as a gin martini, but what are we even saying there? That Burgundy is also somehow inferior to a California Zinfandel, just because you have to go looking for its nuance? Nah, not for me. Anyway, less of me and less of the takes. Because there's plenty more where those came from and a guest who's infinitely more qualified to speak on them. That's right. Beaming in from Las Vegas, it's Tony Abuganim, a bar professional whose industry experience spans decades. He has his own spirits awards, he consults, he writes, he literally wrote the book on today's topic. Listener, as my new pal Tony said up top there, it's Fred Astaire in a glass, Frank Sinatra playing in your head, and the cocktail that all others aspire to. And you know what else? It's all right here on the Cocktail College podcast. We're toasting to happiness here in the Cocktail College studio today with none other than Tony Abuganim Tony, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Ah, uh, Tim, it's my pleasure. I mean, perfect way to kick off a Friday with a vodka martini. Yeah, and you know, the listeners can't see this, but, uh, you know, we might be starting with a cheeky little, here's one we prepared earlier situation <laughs> today. We got, <laughs> we've got refreshments on hand. Um, you're an absolutely Perfect guest to have on this one. Literally written the book on vodka, or one of the books, but the only one you really want to be going out and searching for, listeners. Um, Tony, before we get into anything today, you know, best practices, history, riffs, names, I want to start with a little personal grievance, if that's okay with you. Okay. I I love grievances, uh, as long as they're not (laughs) against me. (laughs) And so, you know, A little pet peeve of mine, you know, my wife is a vodka martini drinker. And before any of the listeners there think I'm diving headway into marital problems there, you know, (laughs) or grievances from my wife listening to this, that's not the issue that I have or the pet peeve. Actually, in fact, it's the opposite. So, you know, whenever we're chatting with kind of cocktail types or bartenders and the conversation of martinis comes up, my wife, Gabriella, will always kind of apologetically say that she's a vodka martini drinker. And I think that's a real shame because I think this is a bona fide cocktail and we're one we're going to treat seriously today. How do you feel about that? Tim, I could not agree more.
1: Um, and part of the reason that I wrote Vodka Distilled, that was in 2013, was there was, for some reason, this kind of arrogance or pretentiousness behind the craft cocktail bar and craft cocktail bartender towards vodka. And I could never understand why. I mean, vodka has such a storied history. It outdates most spirits. I mean, you can make a case that gin is a flavored vodka. Um, And 25% of everyone in America who walks into your bar is going to order vodka. So why would you snub your nose? Why not embrace it? And maybe it's not your favorite spirit to work with. I mean, when you When you think about books like the Savoy Cocktail Book that Harry Craddock wrote in 1930, in that book, there were over 300 gin-based cocktails, but only two vodka-based cocktails. So you can see that it doesn't have, historically, with with regard to cocktails, the lineage that gin has. But today, even, I mean, I've spent the last 43 years of my life behind bars, Tim, and Still, probably seven out of ten people that order a martini today want a vodka martini. So let's serve them the best vodka martini we can because it's it's a beautiful drink and people love to drink it. So let's embrace it, celebrate it,
0: and share it. Tony, you're already you know you're already part of the Cocktail College family now. We're embracing you with open arms because That's the kind of thinking we like here on this show. And, you know, I think a big crux of today's conversation is going to be the changing fortunes of vodka over the years, um, both in mainstream culture, but also in cocktail culture, and how oftentimes they've been at odds with each other. And, you know, this is kind of an aside, but we're seeing in wine right now all of the reporting about like why wine is struggling with younger, you know, drinkers or, you know, just drinkers in general and I think it was kind of good that the bartenders seem to have maybe gone past that phase where they were shunning it a little bit and they're a little bit more open to creating whatever someone wants to drink. Whereas I think maybe wine still suffers that, right, where there's maybe some kind of perceived uh, kind of snobbishness, whether real or otherwise, or intended or otherwise, but... I feel like we've maybe gotten past that in cocktail culture. Do you think that's the case? And, and, you know, we'll save some of that conversation, but do you think that's kind of the case now?
1: No, absolutely, Tim. And we're seeing it at our restaurants. Um, I also do the drinks at T-Mobile Arena for the Vegas Golden Knights and at Allegiant where our Raiders play. And it's cocktails. People are drinking cocktails. So I would totally agree with your assessment that wine is kind of falling out of favor and cocktails. I've never seen them more celebrated, more popular than they are today. And I'm sure as in New York, as in Las Vegas, as in the $20 cocktail is here. So, yeah. you know, let's really put a great drink in front of our guests for that price. And mm. a lot of times, I think we try to force feed people a drink that they may not really want to drink, you know, with esoteric ingredients. And, um, where, you know, you make a great cocktail, And vodka is a great base, and there's some great flavored vodkas out there, Tim. There was an onslaught of every flavor imaginable, (laughs) and I could see how that even turned my stomach a little bit. I mean, we we didn't need another vodka-flavored cereal or marshmallow, Um, but Mm -hmm. great vodka, again, like I said, great history, great foundation to cocktails. More and more, you know, we talked earlier about drinks like the Flame of Love, the Vesper, I and mean, mm-hmm. these are drinks that celebrate vodka and really let the vodka shine. So I'm always one about let's educate, not, you know, turn our nose up. You know, if mm-hmm. someone wants to to drink a Cosmopolitan, let me make you a great Cosmopolitan. And then maybe I'll be able to, you know, turn you on to a gin-based drink once we've established a relationship. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I drink everything, Tim. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> you know, life is too short just need eat vanilla ice cream. Um, so I love to drink everything. And is, I, I'm a, I'm a, like I said, you come to my house and look at my freezer. You'll see like six bottles of vodka, Um, maybe even a little caviar in the fridge to go with it. (laughs) Ooh.
0: Well, you know, earning yourself more cocktail college brownie points right there as well. (laughs) Um, I think where I want to start now properly, though, is by looking at 2024 in the current moment. I think you're so right in that we're in the era of the $20 cocktail, Mm -hmm. and particularly Martinis and I want to keep espresso martinis separate even Mm -hmm. though that's definitely happening and it's amazing and that's wonderful but martinis in general are experiencing this massive resurgence post-pandemic why do you think that is and where do you think the vodka martini fits into that Is is that something that's been brought along with it or is that something that maybe has been kind of left out and people are saying no we don't want to do that well I
1: have to let you know that I mean I started bartending in 1980, and the late 1980s was the, the everything was a martini. I mean, anything served in this glass was referred to as a martini, and it kind of bastardized what an actual martini is. Um, to me, a martini is gin vermouth, Oliver Twist. The vodka martini, even bartenders, now there's some debate about the history on this. The story I heard was bartenders in New York in the early 1950s, as vodka started to surpass gin in a lot of classic cocktails, the vodka martini they needed a name for, uh, and someone came up with the name kangaroo. So that it's unfortunately that name never really stuck. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's back more today than I've ever known it. You know, people are kangaroo, you know, yeah. um, <laughs> but they, they, even they have said we need a different name for the vodka martini than the vodka martini, which... Again, anything in this glass could be called or has been called a martini, a cosmopolitan martini, an apple martini. Mm-hmm. Mean, thank God that drink's gone. But um, <laughs> it, it really is. It's sophisticated. It's elegant. It's, it's the quintessential cocktail. You know, it's a cocktail that all others aspire to. It's Fred Astaire in a glass. Um, it's, it's elegant. And I think that is some of it. And, and I think the glass plays into that. That classic V-shaped glass. Yes, absolutely. I mean, people just feel empowered. They feel sexy holding that glass. And I think as they become a little bit more knowledgeable in cocktails and, you know, a, a gin martini is an acquired taste. You know, you don't just sip a gin martini for the first time and say, this is it. Uh, right. <laughs> you kind of have to warm up to it. Uh, I love gin martinis and I love vodka martinis. Or kangaroos. But there is something, there's a certain elegance about it that kind of, like you can hear Frank Sinatra playing in your head. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, men wearing dinner jackets and women wearing gowns and sleeves and gloves and smoking cigarettes through those big cigarettes. I mean, it's just... (laughs) It, there's, it takes you back, you know, it transports you, and, and I love that time um, mm-hmm. and you can do that with a martini
0: yeah, definitely, yeah, I think you know just you know it's interesting us being in, in different cities here and, and certainly different markets and maybe different potential drinkers. Um, I have found the case in New York to be that that vodka very much is an afterthought when it comes to this current trend that we're seeing, although there are bars where people have gone after that cocktail or have gone after evolving that cocktail, making a riff, intentionally so, and they're fantastic. They're some of my favorite martinis to have in the city. And actually, I'll call them out now. One, one is uh, Veronica here nearby. Um, they do a wonderful, uh, I forget the name of it exactly, but it's a wonderful kind of reserve martini there. It comes with a little side of caviar, which oh. is incredible, as you mentioned earlier, you know, it's just <laughs> a match made in heaven. Um, I think a small handful of bars are going after it, but not as many as where we're seeing maybe some folks like do weird things like infusing gin with smoked salmon or I don't know, any number of other crazy variations. Um, But that's just today. Let's go back into the history because another reason that I think you're a perfect guest for this show is you've lived through the evolution of cocktails and bartending from the 80s, as you mentioned there, to where we are today. You've lived through the Renaissance. So I'd love to get your take on the evolution of this drink, like we said earlier, from a kind of consumer mainstream perspective and then also like, the bartending and craft bartending perspective um that story starts for you in what 1980 i think is your first bar job is that correct 1980 uh, i'm 20 years old i grew up in a
1: bar family tim Uh, my cousin helen david god rest her soul opened the brass rail bar with her mother in 1937 and she was 21 years old it was in the throes of the great depression. We had just come out of prohibition. Um, they, her father passes and leaves them with an ice cream parlor and nobody was eating ice cream during the great depression. So her mother said, Helen, we got to turn the ice cream parlor into a saloon. And Helen said, mom, proper ladies do not run saloons. And her mom said, a lady is a lady, no matter where you put her, but she's got to have a buck in her pocket. And she went on to run that bar for 70 years. So she taught, and it was, you know, a classic cocktail bar. And when I talk about classics, then I'm talking Brandy Alexander's, Grasshopper's, Sidecar's, you know, not all the creative things that are happening today, but it was the classics. And so that is my foundation is in the classics. And I think it was Mencken that once wrote, there'll never be a totally original cocktail created, just riffs on things that have come before them. And, and I, I, I agree with that. Uh, everything that I create, including my cable car, is a riff on a sidecar, which is a riff on a Brandy Cruster from New Orleans from the 1800s. So it, it, there's really this evolution. But yeah, I went through... The time where, you know, when you got something fresh, it was a freshly opened bottle of sweet and sour mix. You know, that was fresh. There was nobody was squeezing fresh juice. Bartenders today, you know, they they think that's crazy. I mean, what, we don't use fresh lemon and lime juice? I I mean, if you've never made a five-gallon jug of margaritas with powdered mix and mixed tequila and artificial (laughs) triple sec... It's hard to have an appreciation for Fresh squeezed Lime, Cointreau, and 100% Agave. So it's been, it has been a great journey. And I think we are in the second coming of, you know, the great cocktail revolution. I I think today, because when I started, Tim, people would ask me, Tony, what do you do for a living? I'm a bartender. Get excited. Next question. What do you want to do for a living? (laughs) <laughs> I'm having a good time being a bartender. Is that not? A, 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 but I stuck with it. There's there's not a lot of people my age, Tim, that started back then because most people were like, okay, I guess I got to do something else. I'll I'll sell insurance, you know, or whatever. Um, quick story. I was I was doing a presentation for a group of consumers, and uh, this gentleman came up afterwards and said, oh, I loved your presentation, man. It was so much fun. When I was in college, I bartended. It was great. I said, you, you know, what do you do now? He's like, uh, so I sell used cars, and his whole demeanor <laughs> changed because it was kind of like, yeah, I, I wasn't supposed to be a bartender as a career, and it, you know, it's kind of sad. Be, but I'm so excited today that mm-hmm. to see people embracing this profession and and making great drinks and and looking at as a as a career and not just a part time job.
0: Definitely, yeah, and I think I think that that treating it as a as a career and a profession rather than a vocation really is the thing that's going to continue to uh, push this industry forward and improve it. And also, you know, still challenges left when it comes to kind of, you know, benefits that you get versus white collar or office jobs is a better way to put it. Sorry. But, you know, I think that continuing to do that is only going to help. Mm-hmm. Um I did read up on something that I wanna pause on for a second because I thought this was an incredible note. So you started working in a bar at 20 because that was the legal age for in the state that you were in. And is it correct that on your birthday, uh, when you turned legal drinking age, you were presented in front of you at your family's <laughs> bar there with one of uh, a handful of different classic cocktails and given them to taste, is that true?
1: That is true. And that actually predates me starting to work there because when I turned 18 in Michigan, the drinking age was 18. So Uh my mom and dad took myself and my buddy Rob to the Brass Rail for our first legal drinks. And my cousin Tony, who I'm named after, was behind the bar. And he just set up, you know, the Tom Collins and the frosted glass and and the sidecar with the sugar rim. And the Manhattan, in that little V shaped kind of old school cocktail glass. And I fell in love with the Manhattan. That was the one drink that I remember from that evening. And I think it was that night on my 18th birthday that I realized I'm going to be a bartender one day. I might not have known it, but subconsciously, that was the tipping point for me. So, yeah, I uh, fantastic. God, I wish I could sit at that bar today with my dad and have a Manhattan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what a fantastic story that is! And I think if that were the case for a lot of other people too, I think again we might have a, a bit of a more of a respect for alcohol just as as a culture. And I come from the UK, and we could certainly do with that ourselves over there too. Um, so that's eighty. Then I want to kind of fast forward in a way to a point where you start to learn of, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is what I've read. You start to learn of the work of Dale DeGroff, or you're, you, you encounter what he's doing there at the Rainbow Room. And how does that, again, where are we at that point with, with the vodka martini and vodka status as a spirit? And where are you in your own journey there? Well, this is 1993
1: now uh I'm living in San Francisco working with Harry Denton at Harry Denton's on Stewart Street the vodka martini is huge cosmopolitans are huge um, you're not seeing an, you're seeing a little bit of kind of creative drink making but not a lot and you're still not seeing drink menus um, drink menus I barely remember any drink menus being offered at that time so 1993 I'm an actor a theatrical actor Do you, recognize me Tim I was the Elka-Seltzer plus cold and flu guy
0: in 1993 (laughs) (laughs) it was right on the tip of my tongue I wish I'd gone for it yeah
1: so I said it's now or never so I I pack up I move to New York City um, and I I meet Mario Batali and I become his first bartender at his first restaurant Poe and he says you got to go up to the Rainbow Room and meet this cat Dale DeGroff he's doing some really cool stuff so I go up to the Rainbow Room, I sit at the bar, I order a Negroni, kind of testing Dale, because in 93, not a lot of people knew what a Negroni was. He lit up, he made it, his patented Burnt Orange Twist, which I've stolen since. <laughs> You're talking flame of love. Um, yep. And that's how we first met. And uh, you know, just it was uh, by happenstance, and we became you know dear friends and colleagues and worked together. And he actually recommended me to Steve Wynn to do the program at the Bellagio in 1998. So, yeah, Dale and I are great. Dale uh, sits as a judge for the Tag Global Spirits Award, so he'll be out next month. Uh, he likes to play a little blackjack, too, while he's in town. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, Dale, was, Dale had a great impact because it was that kind of aha moment. You know, I'm sitting at the bar at the Rainbow Room, and i have been bartending at that point 13 years, but I'm watching Dale and I'm watching his attention to detail, and I'm watching his guests watch Dale and how they're reacting. And and a light bulb goes off, Tim, and I'm like, there's more to this than I've really given credit for. And from that moment on, I said, I I just want to be the best bartender I can be. And that's how it kind of all started in that moment for me, watching Dale and Two years later, I moved back to San Francisco and I hook up with Harry Denton again and we reopened the Starlight Room at the Sir Francis Drake and that led to Steve Wynn in 98 bringing me to Las Vegas. So yeah, Daryl, like
0: I said, played a big role in my career. (laughs) Incredible story, that. And again, one of the reasons that I really did want to bring that up is because I think, you know, I I don't want to be overly reductive, but I think that there are these kind of moments or people and times and places throughout the the modern history of the cocktail, right, that really do stand out as changing the way we do things or changing the way we think about things. And that, that whole idea of Dale uh Inspiring you and many others, I think is 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 what really takes us on to the next level. Um, you mentioned before that probably around earlier than that, probably a lot of bartenders have switched vodka into classically gin based drinks mm-hmm. because gin is kind of not that approachable and gin is 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 harder to appreciate. Um, fast forward to another person and another group of bartenders. Sasha Petrovsky, Milk Mm -hmm. and Honey, that era in New York, not only those folks, but, you know, that era, the turn of the millennium there. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you have what feels like a movement of bartenders who are trying to actively push against that and say, no, if you like vodka, let me make you this gin drink. Let me introduce you to gin. Why do you think that was such a movement at the time?
1: Well... I mean, what Sasha did was great for our profession great for this industry. God rest his soul. Um, I was actually taken to milk and honey early on by Dale and I was blown away. I was like, cause this was, yeah, two years into the Bellagio. And we were doing a lot of great fresh things, premium things. But what he was doing was on a, on a whole nother level. Now, granted he was doing it in this little teeny place and we were serving 25,000 drinks a day at the Bellagio. So, We we all kind of played our part, but um, I think, you know, it started even before that. And uh, a bar in New York that just said, we're not going to carry vodka. We're going to focus on gin drinks. And I don't think they meant it in an arrogant way. I just think they wanted to really focus on the classic gin-based drinks, which is great. But I think what the message was to a lot of young bartenders was, Oh, if they're doing that there, then maybe this is what we should be looking at doing at our place. Um, When I was writing the book, I went into this hip cocktail bar in Oakland, California. And I sit at the bar and I'm looking at the menu, half the ingredients on the menu, I don't even know what they are. I mean, not that, but I'm just like, why would I pay $15 for a drink that I may or may not like? And I noticed that there's not a vodka drink on the menu. Then I start to peruse the back bar, and I don't see a single bottle of vodka. And the, you know, I'm going to say it, pompous bartender, 25-ish, behind the bar, I said, my, I said, excuse me, I'm just curious, I'd like to order a vodka drink. You do have vodka, don't you? And he looks at me. Now, he doesn't know who I am, not that that matters. I'm a paying customer. He, he looks at me and he says, we have two vodkas, and in my opinion, that's two too many. And I was like, this is what's wrong right here. I mean, yep. this is, and like I said, it, it, it had its run. I was so glad to write the book about vodka um, because it should, like I said, it has its place and it's a big place. It's 25% of the U S market. And why turn your nose up? Why not? Hey, like I said, you might not love it personally, but when you're 25, I don't think you really know what you love. You're, you're drinking the Kool Aid. Yep. It's sad. I mean, but I love gin cocktails, all of those kinds. I love a pig. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I mean, if, if given my druthers, you know, I love a gin martini, but I love a mm. vodka martini. So, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's nice to have choices. And a lot of it, Tim, you know, it depends on the, the, the situation. You mentioned, or we both mentioned caviar. Caviar, to me, doesn't go with gin. It goes Wholeheartedly. with vodka, yeah. though.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
1: even like, you know, when you think about Eastern Europe, where really vodka got the start, and you think about pre-industrial revolution, you, know, you had salted food, you had dried food, you had cured food, you didn't have refrigeration, per se. So there's not a lot of wines that go with you know, herring, pickled herring. I mean, but vodka is a beautiful match with these. Mm-hmm. So I think it kind of, you know, it depends on what you're, what what you're having, the situation, the meal, um, mm-hmm. and the cocktail.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I'd like to wrap up our kind of cultural even exploration here, or his little history dive, by saying, you know. I'm so glad that we've gotten to a point where, where bartenders at large are, are a lot more open to being like, whatever you want to drink, we'll make it and we'll make it to the best of our ability. Yes. And the fact now that there's like cool bartending apparel sites that sell t-shirts that say vodka pays the bills, <laughs> I think is, is a sign that like bartenders too are appreciating the value of vodka and drinks like the vodka soda or the vodka martini, right? Um, but beyond that, Here's, here's a way of flipping it on its head, and you may have mentioned this in your book, I'm sure, exploring it, right? Like, a lot of people talk about, well, vodka's boring, or, or you know, vodka's not a high-quality spirit, but if you go back in history, right, and to more rudimentary times, there's nowhere for vodka to hide. Nope. But with gin... You can start adding these botanicals. You can add different things to, to you know, cover over blemishes and impurities. Whiskey, you stick it in a barrel. And I think even these days, some whiskey companies might then stick it in another barrel afterwards to oh, maybe sure. hide the flavor <laughs> of the base distillate. You don't get that with vodka classically, right? So vodka distilling is a, is a real art and science and craft, right? Tim, I think, I think
1: you stole my quote, uh, vodka is nowhere oh. to hide. Uh, you can use it anytime. you have uh, my permission. And it's absolutely true. It, it really comes down to the art of the distiller. And I always say what to me makes a great vodka is not what you distill out or filter out, but what the master distiller is able to capture in the final distillate. You know, Chopin, their rye vodka I mean, that spiciness, I mean, the character, the mouthfeel, the acidity, all those beautiful things that retained in the distillate. Um, You know, uh, uh, potato vodka. I mean, we've got one from Woody Creek here where they grow the potatoes on the distillery, well, near the distillery, and ferment and only do them when they're in season. I mean, you have that rich, creamy, earthiness to that vodka. I mean, this is what vodka is. Yes, there's subtle details, but to be able to differentiate and discern those details, those elements, those nuances, to me, is what makes it so special. If, if vodka was all the same, you'd have one vodka. Uh, exactly. And Steve Olson, a dear friend of mine, he said, you know, vodka is the most difficult. If you're good at elevating your vodka, if you're able to um, evaluate the nuances and enjoy those, and understand them. Everything else, like you said earlier, Tim, come, becomes so much easier. And when we judge it, that's what we're looking for. Our, our, you know, the distillant, what they're mm-hmm. able to achieve in that final product. Do you get the spice of the rye? Do you get the creaminess of the wheat? Do you, you know, you get the richness um, from the potato and that earthiness? Um, and that's, to me, what is beautiful about vodka. Uh, mm-hmm. I love to do vertical blind tastings when i do them i do them in our tag global spirits tasting glass which we designed i'm gonna have to send you a set oh fantastic! it makes all the difference in the world and and just not let anybody know what brand is what to take the perception out of the tasting and just say you know enjoy the vodka for what's in the glass Mm -hmm. and people are blown away by the differences you know the u.s definition of vodka is a tasteless, colorless spirit, uh, odorless spirit, which they've done away with, thank God. That's changed, yeah. I, I want to
0: get into that in a, in a second, but, but yeah, changed. sorry, carry on.
1: But that, I feel, really was disruptive to the vodka category, and I don't know. It's, it's 100%. Just, and getting back to your question about bartenders, I mean, it must have been difficult to have to tell customers every night we only have two vodkas or we don't stock vodka or we don't make vodka cocktails or you want a cosmopolitan. Really? I mean, it's, (laughs) it must, (laughs) but you know, it's nice again, Tim, like you said, I think today we're getting back more to simplicity and I don't know if that has to do with COVID. I mean, there's still bars out there doing really creative stuff, but you know, even on our restaurants, it's more about let's, focus in on simplicity and do it really, really well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, those are all really fantastic points and definitely do want us to get a little bit more into that definition in a second, but because I feel like we're in the series here, I think, you know, fueled by our fantastic little refreshments we have here where we're breaking <laughs> down some barriers here, or we're, we're flipping things on their heads. So here's another thing that I want to maybe challenge as a, as a popular, I'm going to say it's a misconception, right? everyone out there will say, or a lot of people will turn around and say, there's no difference between X, Y, and Z vodka. It's all marketing. And I want to flip that on its head. And I want to say, no, that's not the case. However, what you are actually showing there was that vodka brands were very good at marketing and very successful and ahead of their times and better than other spirits categories. You wouldn't need to convince people to drink gin if gin had done a similarly good job when it comes to marketing. And so you can say it's all about the marketing. No, but guess what? They got it right, and that was a big part of vodka's story. I couldn't agree more, Tim.
1: Um, I often ask people, you know, why they drink the vodka they drink. And they really don't have an answer for me. And I think that plays into your marketing scenario. You know, when you go through a tasting blind and you do the work, and you say, for whatever reason, glass three resonates with me. And it may not even be the vodka that you're drinking. It may be something totally different, but you have now done an educated selection on six or eight different vodkas, all great quality vodkas from different raw materials. And for some reason you picked glass three. So why not drink glass three? Um, I love when people come in and, and they order you know, a brand like Chopin. Like I said, Chopin this year, their organic rye, best to show a tag, or Kettle One. Um, I got a really special bottle. I can't open it uh, today, but this is a signed by Carl Nolette Senior. So this is this is a this bottle is probably close to
0: twenty five years old. Um so I love you, Tim, but I'm not going to open this one. <laughs> <laughs> Piece of history right there that we're witnessing here. Uh, I wish the listeners could see it as well. But uh no, that's a fantastic, that's a fantastic bottle right there. Um, you know, I do some work on the side as well as kind of a spirits competition judge, but here at Vinepair, uh I review a lot of spirits for our publication. And I gotta tell you, I, I'm in complete agreement with yourself here when one of the most interesting tastings of the year and the one that I look forward to most is the vodka tasting because it challenges me as a as a spirits taster and challenges my senses and and really does make you kind of hone in but when you do that and when you taste all of these products side by side especially at room temperature what you're getting there is a, a is an array of flavors and mm-hmm. textures too yeah. that People don't give it credit for, and it it really is a fantastic category when you when you start to geek out a little, or when you just give it serious consideration.
1: No, you're absolutely right. We can put eight glasses out with eight different vodkas, and within the first two glasses, do away with the U.S. old U.S. definition of tasteless, colorless, odorless, um, and people are just amazed by the end of it that there are such differences between vodkas. Um, mm-hmm. I love doing that. I just love, you know, to watch that, you know, that aha moment of, wow, mm-hmm. you know, I always <laughs> thought they were, you know, it's just vodka. Um, yeah. You and I got to get together and taste. We're going <laughs> to do a tasting together. <laughs> Definitely.
0: Absolutely. And so another thing there, that definition, I think that might have been one of those things as well, where that bartending period that we spoke about before and those particular bartenders turned around and said, look, by definition, mm-hmm. it can't have taste or flavor. And I think that's crazy. I'm glad they did away with that, because it, even when that was the definition, it was never true, right? Like nothing has changed about the category. It's just, you know, some wording in the TTB changed. Um Let's talk about the martini specifically now, though, and different types of vodka. Um, Maybe you can start by telling us, I I don't want to overly simplify, but, you know, the characteristics of what a different base ingredient is going to give you, and then what's going to be your preference when it comes to making up a vodka martini?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, kind of, to me, comes down to the garnish. Now, I started when I made this, I didn't add vermouth and I've I've kind of I want to taste the vodka and be able to really identify the creaminess, the richness of this wheat that's coming through, the notes of vanilla, again coming from the raw material. If I added vermouth, then I'm gonna be picking up all the botanicals and you know and the herbs and things mm-hmm. of the vermouth because the vodka will act as a platform. Now there are vodkas that I've encountered that are big, bold, like this Woody Creek potato vodka will stand up, in my opinion, to a little bit of vermouth. When you go back and look at the original kangaroo recipes, and they date back to 1943 and 1944, they called for two parts of vodka, three quarters of an ounce dry vermouth, and in David Emery's, which I have a copy of right here, <laughs> which my last dog got to, and kind of chewed up the book, but uh, he calls for three to four parts vodka, one part French vermouth. So that's going back, this is, this is 1948, to when French vermouth was dry vermouth. Um, he's the first one to stir the martini, where the other two mentions actually shake it, and all three call for a twist of lemon. It's a great drink, but again, for me, it kind of takes away from the vodka. Now, if I'm going to make something like with a Chopin Rye, that's a big, bold, spicy vodka, so it'll stand up to like a blue cheese stuffed olive. Ooh, you know, and I don't know tim if you know filthy daniel from miami filthy very gosh.
0: familiar with filthy here we've, we've had them into the vine pair office actually once for a, a bit of a tasting and yeah great olive products they have there
1: he, he told me he tasted over 200 different olives before he settled on the olive that they use for filthy which to me is like now there's a guy who is committed to his garnish, I mean, we're dear friends. We have been from when he was selling these things out of the back of his minivan. Um, I love the guy, and he, you know, he he makes great stuff. I use a lot of his garnishes, but something like that with the blue cheese will stand up to that. You know, I mentioned here with the Wheatley that a twist of lemon or a twist of orange to play off of that richness of the wheat. So that's kind of where I go with it, but. While we're talking about vermouth, Tim, people don't treat vermouth properly, in my opinion. I mean, vermouth is aromatized wine, and you should treat it more like a wine than a spirit. And that's why I always buy the smaller bottles. I mean, I'm going to make one just for fun here with uh, Cinzano Extra Dry, because it's just a beauty. I love that just on its own. But... Now the drink becomes more about the vermouth than the vodka, which is great as a complex drink becomes something different. So I kind of, I don't know, I play that middle ground on what really constitutes a martini. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the one thing we haven't really talked about, Tim, is the preparation. And I think both of us agree on stirring it, but our dear friend James Bond uh, <laughs> I, I had a woman come up to me the other day said don't you just love it when you shake vodka really really hard and you pour it out and you get those ice crystals floating on top and that's the way she loves to drink it who am i to say ah maybe not but if i can say well, let me just try making you something you tell me what you think um it, it really becomes a personal choice and ultimately i think it's the person who's. Ordering, paying for, and enjoying the drink—that—that that should decide. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and and so, you know, I just want to mention for the listeners here too, because there was kind of a little spoiler alert on your on your front there when we were talking about not including uh, vermouth there because we were making these ourselves mm-hmm. off air beforehand. We're going to have some wonderful video content to go out with this episode too where folks are going to be able to watch you doing that. But I, I do find that very interesting that, you know, that there are some types of vodka that you're you yourself, you're going to turn around and go, you know what? I don't want vermouth. So I made mine the same there. And I'm going to be honest with you I'm I'm using a a, a different but a, similarly a wheat-based vodka here and I got to say this is a, to my mind a better cocktail and a more enjoyable drink than a dry vodka martini with some vermouth there's more harmony here and with the lemon twist garnish I actually think this on its own has more flavor than if I'd put vermouth in the drink and that's fascinating because I've I've never actually actively approached making the drink this way, and then considered the results like that.
1: Well, I was just going to make myself another one with the vermouth and, and kind of <laughs> see, because now I'm, I'm, I'm curious because I haven't done it in a long time. Uh, so why not? Let's give it a, a little cinzano extra dry. Mm-hmm. And
0: again, we're just, we're just free pouring here, Tony.
1: Tim, I've been doing this 43 years. Uh, if, if I can't free play at this point, uh, I, I don't know, I've been paying attention.
0: Well, I'm going to narrate for the listeners here just as you're doing this. So you got a little Cinzano, Cinzano, uh, whatever, you know, you can be European or not. You got your Wheatley here, your wheat-based vodka, which, by the way, folks, I want to say fun fact for the listeners here too, that I think, am I mistaken in thinking, actually isn't Wheatley the same mash bill as Pappy Van Winkle? Or is that a lie? I think we might've written an article about that here on VinePair. as you stir away here rather than shake. Well,
1: um, that would be a shocker to me. I think Wheatley is a blend of a proprietary wheat recipe where they actually use two different distillants, blend them together and then we distill. And I think they're just different strains of wheat. Where mm-hmm. papu would be, you
0: know, it obviously, is alluded,
1: but you also have your corn,
0: your corn, yeah, and you have
1: your um, malted barley.
0: I might be misremembering, but I think there might be an article out there on VinePair uh, that we, where we spoke about that. But even well, look, here's something else we got to get into, and we haven't spoken about. I can't believe we've gotten this far. Um, corn vodka, and in particular, one corn vodka out there which has just had one of the most phenomenal success stories in modern alcohol history
1: well tito beverage is a dear friend i met him in 1999 so i've known him almost as long as he's been making vodka i was reading a trade magazine in my office at bellagio and i come across this article first legal distiller in texas tito's vodka and they list the six states it was available in and nevada was one of them so I get on the phone and I, I called the distillery and said, I'm looking for Mr. Tito beverage. And the gentleman says, you got Tito. I said, Tito, Tony Aboganum, Bellagio Resort, just tried your vodka, love it, want to bring it into our 29 bars and at the at Bellagio And But I'd like you to come out and do some seminars, do some tastings, meet the staff, tell your story. And he said, I can't do that. Now, Tim, I had had every master distiller on the planet begging to come to the live show. I wasn't asking him for money. I just said, just want you to come out and, you know. But it turns out he was flat broke. He had done everything on credit cards. He had to shut down the distillery to leave for three days to come to Las Vegas. He calls me back like three days later and says, when do you want me there? And his fiance, now wife, Lori, who's a dear friend also, came in to the uh, distiller, which was a shack that he built uh, <laughs> with his homemade still, and saw this you know, posted up on his bulletin board, Tony Abugan and Bellagio, and she said, what's that? And he said, ah, some guy from Las Vegas wants to sell Tito's at you know, the resort and wants me to come out. And I think she said, well, when are you going? And he said, I told my kid, and I'm not sure exactly – but I think she's probably says something. are you out of your friggin mind? <laughs> and we, we've been dear friends ever since and you know there's it, it, it a lot of things with Tito's. Uh, you know you know it was American made it was 100 percent corn it was kind of in a premium price point point. Um, and that brother worked it man I mean I've known him I'd see him at WWA with his backpack and you know just. Nobody worked harder. It was like an overnight success that took 20 years. Mm-hmm. I just wish you would have asked me to invest. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you could turn back the time and say, here, I'll pay off your credit cards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> give, me, give me a slice. <laughs> just a small slice. <laughs> no. Here's the other thing that I want to mention, though, about TOs, where that, that's relevant for this conversation, too. It's a singular brand in yeah. all of alcohol but in vodka specifically because we're talking one product yes yes labels never changed the label looks like you could have made <laughs> that yourself at home right i think that adds to the charm and in fact you know when there was this whole craze and, and it continues of of canned cocktails and rtd mm-hmm. beverages and whatnot To's came out in true tongue-in-cheek form yep. and sold a can for yeah. you to put your cocktails in, which I thought was incredible marketing and kind of, yeah, just, just really kind of aligns with their, their brand story there.
1: Oh, no. It was, it, when we first went into COVID and the shutdown and um, I, I was doing some you know, to-go cocktails and I called Pete, who's the president of Tito's and is a dear friend also, and I said, why don't we do this? Tito's and Tony's. We'll do Tito's vodka with Tony's recipes, and I've got I've got somebody who can you know cold press the juice, and we'll do fresh and really pre RTDs. And he said Tito has no interest whatsoever in. Do- we can barely keep up with production as it is, and I was like God, that, I thought that was my chance to just get a little taste, but mm-hmm. I, I my hat goes off to him because like you said, Tim, it's one product. There's no flavors. There's no. It's just Tito's and. It's mm-hmm. really replaced vodka. Where I, I was just in the Caribbean, I work with Royal Caribbean as one of my clients. And we we're at this small little island. And what do you think they got in the back bar? Titos, yeah. Tito's. Tito's. <laughs> we We're in the middle of nowhere, and there's a
0: because <laughs> they got fed up of people coming in and asking, "I'll have a Titos and soda. Oh, there." Exactly. And if they were, and the bartenders were like, "What's Titos?" and like, you know. And again, that's a signifier when 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 a product name is synonymous with a category. You know, there's there's success there too, but. You know, I, I love the fact that we're, we're approaching all of the different brands here and what they specialize in. You know, we were kind of talking about this off camera and it's not just because they they partner with us on, on different episodes too, but like, you know, Kettle One, I also just want to point out there as, as a different type of brand that has shunned the... Narrative that more distillations is better and and the distillation number kind of arms race where you have a product there where we're talking about unique stills being used and different mm-hmm. production method that has a has an impact on the final kind of product. can you chat us a little bit about that because we've teased it in some of our ad reads and i'd I'd love from an expert like yourself to learn more and again this is this is purely editorial, but I think it's a fascinating conversation
1: no it it absolutely is, and I think a lot of it was you know, marketing, coming back to the fact that if it's six times distilled and eight times distilled or 10 times distilled has to be better. And, you know, I think it's how you do those distillations. And what, I said this earlier, what you're able to retain in the final distillate as opposed to what you distill out or filter out um, that gives it the character, that gives it the body, the mouthfeel, all of those elements that identify Kettle One as Kettle One. Um, you know, absolutely. Another one. I mean, yeah, so different, but I mean their approach to distillation and filtration is, is very unique. Um, Tito, we were just talking about totally different, um, you know, where they're rectifying through these pot stills that he had originally made his, I mean, now he's got big ones, but they're based on that same kind of philosophy that he had when he first started. It's so funny, you know, just about Tito's and production, I sent him a picture the other, well, this is a few years back. Uh, I was down in the warehouse at Mandalay Bay. We just got a pallet of Tito's, and I took a photo. I said, we just got our delivery of Tito's. And he said, that used to take me a month to make a pallet. (laughs) (laughs) It's phenomenal, isn't it? But he sticks to that same philosophy on distillation, just in a much larger scale larger scale.
0: And then, you know, again, talk about marketing and the messaging that goes out there. I guess the final thing that we haven't spoken with when it comes to production is proofing down to 40% ABV, <laughs> which is, you know, almost always going to be the standard. I think there's some others out there, but proofing down. And a lot of companies might lean into their water source, especially mm-hmm. if they're kind of Nordic, or I think there's one in Iceland, I forget that Reka Vodka, which, you know, is talking about that as well, and, and talking about the importance of water, which is very similar to vodka, and that you might think that water, different waters don't taste different, but you do a mineral water side-by-side side tasting, it will blow your mind.
1: Oh, absolutely. If, you, if you've ever done a vertical tasting of waters, blows your mind. Oh, like yeah. And if you think about it, 60% of what's in this bottle of vodka is water. So I, I am totally convinced that the water plays a part in the overall character of the final vodka. The thing that a lot of people don't talk about either is the yeast. Um, yeast will definitely contribute esters Hmm. The final vodka. So the yeast that you're using is, I think, very important to those nuances. But yeah, no, I I mean, the the water thing doesn't get mentioned enough. Um, You know, when people talk about it came from a, you know, 6,000-year-old glacier, I don't know if that plays in, but it really... Although I have had drinks made with glacier ice, and they're pretty spectacular. Um, (laughs) But all those elements, because really you have the grain, either a single grain or a mix of grains or a potato. or, I mean, really, you can be made from any fermentable sugars. So, I mean, I've had apple vodka. I've had vodka made from all And anything that has sugar, that's all you need. But then you have the water and you have the yeast. I mean, the fermentation really, I think, plays into those Mm -hmm. little subtle characteristics of the final vodka.
0: And we're very hypocritical if if, if we turn around and we say, we, you know, we, we care about all of these things when it comes to whiskey production, but we don't think they play an impact in vodka. I just don't think that that can be true. Uh, this is truly an episode for vodka lovers here today. And, uh, you know, I'm having a lot of fun here. Uh, I think we're going to need to get on or hear from you a, a cocktail recipe in a second. But before we do, because we teased it a little bit before, you know, we spoke about how the fact that the vodka martini did have the name, the kangaroo. And it would be interesting to maybe hypothesize about how the drinks fortunes would have changed if it was called always known as the kangaroo versus the vodka martini, maybe discussion for another day. Because we talked about the flame of love and, you know, yourself being based, all right, you're not in LA, but you're in Vegas. And there's, you know, there's a vibe to that there. So tell us the story of the flame of love here today. Because I think that ties into a lot of what you were talking about earlier when it comes like how a well-made vodka martini makes you feel.
1: Absolutely. Well, about 15 years ago, Dale DeGroff and I worked with Finlandia Vodka on a project called Finishing School for bartenders. And we went to 43 different markets, six different countries. And I mean, it was brought to you by Finlandia, but it was about vodka. It was educating you on vodka. So You know, Kettle One was there, Absolute was there, Tito's was there. Um, It was the whole category to show Finlandia made from barley as opposed to Kettle made from wheat as opposed to Tito's made from corn, the differences. And we all presented drinks and Dale presented the flame of love. And that was the first time really that I knew about the flame of love from Pepe at Chasen's in Hollywood, as you mentioned. And he would burn... And I would help him because, you know, there'd be like 200 bartenders in the audience so we would have to, you know, burn all these orange down <laughs> to the glass. And it's like, Dale, you couldn't have picked a easier drink? Uh, and then rinse the glass with Fino Sherry and the orange oil, and then vodka. So you've got the nuttiness of the Fino, you've got the citrus from the orange, and then the vodka shine through. And it really is a beautiful drink. And a lot of times when we talk about vodka-based drinks, Vodka is there kind of as the alcohol, but you're not able to identify it. Um, I did a drink in vodka distilled called The Wizard, and it was uh, really named for Billy Joel, you know, who said we're all wizards. And it, it celebrates vodka with a little yellow chartreuse, a little Bianco vermouth, and some orange bitters. It really is a lovely vodka drink. And that's where I think we need to go is is more drinks mm-hmm. that celebrate vodka and don't just use vodka for the alcohol.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so Flame of Love, created for Dean Martin, but maybe most notably, I want to say what, the chasing Frank, Frank Sinatra what, orders around of 200 of them, yes. is that correct?
1: <laughs> yeah, and then you go through like a case of oranges, <laughs>
0: flame of love for everyone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> around <laughs> for everyone, but there's 200 people in there. <laughs> Yeah, Dean um,
1: said, you know, everybody's got a drink but me, you know, and, and Pepe said, Dean, come back next week, I'll have a drink for you. And thanks <laughs> and was written and said, yeah. Oh, this is great, Pepe, you to have one for everybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Um, all right, well, you know, given the context of the episode, this is this is a very tough question or one that doesn't have one answer because of all the different things we've gotten into. But Tony, I'm I'm going to ask you to commit here today. So, you know, kind of through that lens, maybe I'm a classically I'm a vodka martini drinker, but I come to you and I'm like, I'm just approaching this whole idea of a craft cocktail bar and you're a craft cocktail bartender, and I say, "Tony, I'd love for you to make me what is going to be the best vodka martini." in my life where do we go from here can we talk it through maybe you're going to ask me some interactions who knows but let's talk it through and let's kind of make that for the listeners um it, hypothetically here wow that
1: that really is uh a, a, it's almost like saying which one is your favorite kid or uh <laughs> everyone's um, always
0: got favorite though haven't they they just don't talk about it no i'm
1: joking <laughs> well i mean drinking this one with the cinzano uh, extra Driver vermouth is lovely but it's Totally different than the drink that I made with the Wheatley without the vermouth. Um, and I think I agree with you. I don't think i I prefer the one without the vermouth to this one. It's an interesting drink. One thing we didn't talk about was bitters., Ooh. you know, I love a dash or two of orange bitters with vodka. Um, that would be the only thing that I would add. And I started by saying garnish, and we talked about some of the filthy garnishes depending on the profile of the vodka that I choose is going to make me kind of dependent on, do I go with a Gibson and use a Pearl Onion? Or do I go with, you know, the filthy pickle? You know, is there something spicy that's going to complement that? To be honest with you, my favorite way to drink vodka, Tim, is straight out of the freezer in a little frozen vodka glass and you talked about the reveal a little bit, about all the characteristics. When a vodka comes out of the freezer, it almost takes on a syrupy consistency. I don't shoot it. I was in Russia when I was writing the book. I mean, you've got to have your drinking hat on if you go out with your Russian brothers and sisters to drink because it's shot after shot <laughs> after sh- Toast, another t- <laughs> I like to just sip it and I like to experience the vodka as it begins to gradually warm. And as it warms up, it starts to express itself more and notes that you don't pick up initially, even when you get that beautiful syrupy consistency, start to reveal themselves. And that's what I call the vodka reveal. Um, if you happen to have a little extra caviar or some pickled herring, it's beautiful to share, uh, with that. But, my perfect vodka martini would be almost what I just made. The Wheatley or whatever vodka you're feeling, just make sure you're using great ice. There's that great debate about shaking versus stirred. I did a test once on coldness and on dilution. And if you shake short amount of time or stir a short amount of time, yes, the shaking one gets a little colder. It's all about the ice. You know, if you have great quality ice, you want hard, cold, dry, clear ice that's not going to impart any flavors. You know, the stuff that your freezer makes is going to work as a sponge. So if you've got some leftover salmon fillets in there from your fishing excursion with Uncle Charlie, <laughs> yeah. the ice will taste like that. In old yeah. part of it. It's just really paying attention to details. And I'll tell you a martini in a glass like this is going to taste better than one in an old, you know, jam jar. And we're all out of college, right? So get rid of those old, you know, jam jars you've been serving milk and juice and martinis in and, you know, the Fred's, the Barney's and the Wilma's and invest in some beautiful crystal glassware because the drink will just taste better. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, Tim, if you've gone through and you've tasted blind vodkas, and you've picked your favorite, that is what you should put into your vodka martini. And if you want to experiment with a little vermouth, just make sure it's fresh, high quality, French dry vermouth, Um, and then play with the garnish. Lemon, orange, grapefruit, olives, onions, uh, or no garnish at all. Some vodkas, I just, I don't garnish at all. But you have to kind of decide for yourself. And that only way to do that, like my mom said, never trust a skinny chef. You got to taste everything (laughs) is to taste the vodkas.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, there are many things that I love about that answer. But I think I think the single thing that I love most about the answer you've just given us there is that I almost feel empowered here as a drinker on the other side of the bar um, to challenge the notion and to flip something else on its head has been has been the trend in this episode, right? When someone turns around and says, oh, so you're you're a dry vodka martini drinker then. Oh, so what you just want is cold vodka. I feel now empowered to turn around and say, yes, but stirred with proper ice and made properly and a good quality vodka because you know what? There's enough complexity and interest in that drink that you don't need anything else. And the proof is in the pudding here as we're drinking them, so... Thank you for that. I appreciate that one. Oh, it's
1: My pleasure on that because, again, this is a lovely drink, but I can't taste the vodka. All I taste now is vermouth. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about the first one, it celebrated the vodka. And that's really what I want from this drink. But Mm -hmm. like I've said over and over, you should drink it the way you like it. Drink it the way you want to. But the only way to know is to taste different things. That's the only way to know. And this has been a great experiment for me today um, to just kind of go back and try it with vermouth and reinforce the fact that vodka martini doesn't need vermouth <laughs> <laughs> to <me. laughs> Not Maybe not for you, but for me, I, I just want the vodka. Uh, but yeah, it's fun. I mean, we're not curing cancer here, Tim. We're just trying to put smiles on faces and try to improve your day. And if, if vodka martini can help, that's uh, more power to it.
0: Well, you know, I, I, I kicked off the episode, you know, with that little anecdote and that little personal grievance I had here. Um, you know, she's not going to know this, but it's Friday here as, as we're recording. And, and when I go home later tonight and make my wife a vodka martini, I'm actually hey. not going to use any vermouth. Now, I might have a little bit of trouble convincing her to go with a twist over the olive because she loves an olive. But we'll, but we'll see. I'm going to keep out the vermouth and see, uh, see what she says on that one. Because, like I said, you've opened my eyes there. Well, thank you. It's, uh,
1: <laughs> it's uh, you know, like I said, uh, my cousin Helen David, God rest her soul. I mean, when she taught me to make a vodka martini, it didn't include vermouth. And I've been making it that way for 43 years. And uh, I have to just kind of, if I can, plug my charity, the Helen David Relief Fund. This is something that I started in memory of my cousin Helen, who ran a bar for 70 years and was a two-time breast cancer survivor. So I started in the Helen David Relief Fund to benefit bartenders and their families going through cancer treatment. And on March 8th here in Las Vegas, anyone listening love to have you attend the Pink Tie Party. It'll be uh, held at the Palms. It's part of the Tag Global Spirits Awards. It's kind of how we end everything. Uh, at the Moon Bar, a lot of great suppliers, a lot of great bartenders making fantastic cocktails and celebrating uh, the Helen David Relief Fund and raising funds to benefit bartenders going through cancer
0: treatment. So we'd love to see you there. Well, that's, you know, fantastic work there, Tony. And, you know, I'm sure speaking on behalf of a lot of people here when I say, you know, hats off to you and and, and fantastic work that you're doing there. So glad we got the opportunity to to share that one and and do some spreading of the word here. Um, you're not quite off the hook yet today. <laughs> I still because...
1: have a little martini left.
0: <laughs> <laughs> because A, you still got a little martini left and B we got to finish the episode, as we do every week, with five questions to get to know you more as a bartender and a drinker. And we're going to kick off with the first question, which is, what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar?
1: Well, our back bar at Libertine Social at Mandalay Bay here in Las Vegas would have to be whiskey. When we opened uh, seven and a half years ago, we made a commitment to whiskeys of the world. So obviously we have a a large American whiskey selection, but we also have Japanese, Irish, big Scotch selection, some Canadians that are kind of unique, but really a round selection in every spirit category. But the largest uh, real estate would go to whiskey. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and we, we were, we've been talking a lot about the vodka phenomenon here today, but, you know, the bourbon boom, that's one maybe mm-hmm. for another day for us to go through and, and break down because that has been a phenomenon. Um, question two, though. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Ooh, let me see what I got here in my drawer. This is the modern mixologist lime
1: squeezer um, for extracting... Fresh lime juice la minute. Lime juice is the most fragile of all citrus. It'll start to oxidize in 20 to 25 minutes after you've squeezed it. So if I squeeze it and put it in a bottle before my shift, by the time four or five hours roll around, it's still fresh lime juice. But sometimes you get that agena after you've had a couple margaritas. Well, that comes from oxidized lime juice. So by squeezing la minute, fresh lime juice into every drink you guarantee your guest the freshest possible drink plus it also just looks really cool you mm-hmm. know if you order a margarita and somebody squeezes fresh lime juice into that drink and you watch that it sends a message so i i think you know everyone's doing fresh today but are they really doing fresh could it be fresher And I think the only way to do that is to squeeze it a la minute. Uh, We opened Bellagio in 98 with these at every bar. And I mentioned earlier, 25,000 drinks a day, every Mojito, every Cosmopolitan, every Margarita, a la minute. And I still, to this day, any program I work on, if it's 64,000 guests at Allegiant Stadium, they're ordering our silver and black Margarita, fresh squeezed lime juice.
0: Wow. All right, i got two quick follow-up questions for you on that one. Uh, First one could be a simple yay or nay answer. Am I squeezing directly into the jigger, or should I go with a different vessel?
1: Well, if if you're talking about a 220 lime and you select the right limes, a lime should give you, within a drop or two, one ounce of juice. I'm not, as you noticed earlier, Tim, as anal about the jigger. I watch a lot of people work jiggers and they work them badly. I think there's more mistakes made or as many mistakes made using a jigger than not. I think free pouring is an art. And if you really understand the craft, you can free pour, but it's almost become a show to use the jigger.
0: You know, if
1: you want yeah. to use the jigger, use the jigger, but use it properly.
0: Okay. Fantastic. Second part of my follow-up question here. Uh 1993, you walk into Rainbow Room. Are you already yourself squeezing fresh juice at that point? Or was that something that, that you took away from that moment too? I am already squeezing fresh juice. I found this in 1995
1: at Tommy's Mexican Restaurant, Julio Bermejo, every margarita hand-squeezed. Julio became a partner of mine. He's my partner, along with Dave Grabsche and the Tag Global Spirits Awards. Once I saw this, in 1995, I've used it ever since. Um, and thank you, Julio, but every margarita at Tommy's, I've never mm-hmm. seen
0: it before, but I've never done it differently since. Mm-hmm. Fantastic stuff. And yeah, I'll just point out for the listener that that's, that's like the classic handhold squeezer that you're used to there. It's the kind of gunmetal, mm-hmm. uh, not, not, not a matte finished looking product right there that you've seen and you know. Um, all right, question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? (laughs) All right.
1: I'm going to quote my cousin, Tony, who's really my mentor in getting into bartending. He said, don't lend money to the customers, don't gamble with the customers, and don't sleep with the help. (laughs) But, you know... (laughs) But Helen always said, you know... You treat your customers like ladies and gentlemen and tell you they prove they're not. But uh, you know, it, there's so many, Tim, that you just kind of, at the end of the day, we're in the hospitality business. And I always, when people ask me, you know, what is our job? Our job is to put smiles on faces but Mm -hmm. my cousin Tony set me straight from an early
0: age. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's like, you know, despite all the weird different things that this career and this profession has that so many others don't, you still got to, you know, you still got to be approaching it like that or like you would any other one, but uh, very wise words of wisdom (laughs) right there. Um, All right, penultimate question now for you. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, uh, past present future can be real or otherwise what would it be all right so i'm going to give you a past and a future i can never
1: recreate or imagine an experience like i had in 1993 at the rainbow room with dale de groff you know obviously that bar is is gone now the rainbow room's there but it's not dale's bar that was demolished and they recreated it uh but that That experience, if I could go back to 1993 Rainbow Room with Dale behind the bar in his red jacket, that would probably be number one. Uh, The Brass Rail obviously holds a dear place in my heart in Port Huron, Michigan. It's no longer in the family, unfortunately, although maybe one day it will be again. But I'd I'd probably, if I could have my last drink, it would have to be at the Brass Rail in
0: Port Huron, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a very natural seg here into the final question of the day, which is, if you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Wow.
1: So many cocktails out there, but I think anyone who knows me knows that my favorite cocktail is a Negroni. It's, uh, it's a drink that David O'Malley turned me on to when we opened Harry Denton's on Stewart Street in 1991, and nobody knew what a Negroni was then. And I tasted it, and I spit it out. I was like, is it supposed to taste like this? <laughs> <laughs> and they said that even the Italians have to try it three times before falling in love. And fortunately for me, I did. And if, if I were going to the box tomorrow,
0: I'd have a Negroni in my hand. You know, it's a real popular one there. Um, I find it fascinating, just 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 how... Incredibly popular that drink is, and that doesn't you know that's nothing against the Negroni on my part. There, I'm just you know that the one drink would seemingly rise above maybe all of them. But Tim, you have to remember in
1: 1991, nobody knew what a Negroni was. In 1998, when I stood in front of 300 plus bartenders at Bellagio, and I said, How many people in this room know what a Negroni is? Raise your hand. I think two hands out of over 300 went up. And I said, if you're gonna learn one drink, it's gonna be the Negroni, because it's my favorite drink, and I wanna to come to your bar and drink them. So today, yes, it is the bartender handshake. Everyone knows the Negroni, but when you go back again and look historically, the drink is relatively new in this country. And I don't know if I had a small part to play in that, and I was selfishly, like I said, I love to drink them, so I I was promoting them anywhere I could go. But I can remember going to bars and ordering Negroni and said, Oh, we're out in Negroni. Out. Oh, we just, uh, we don't have Negroni, but we have Peroni. No, it's not (laughs) an Italian beer. (laughs) No Negroni, but Navon. I was like, No, it's not a vanilla (laughs) cognac. So, I mean, that's the thing you kind of, again, you touched on it earlier. When you spend 43 years in the business, Einstein once said, the only way to gain knowledge is through experience. And I truly believe that. If I didn't have the experience that I've had over the last 43 years in this industry, I wouldn't be able to speak about these experiences, about where we're at today and where we've come from. And I I don't know. It's just been an amazing journey, Tim. And Mm -hmm. uh, I'm so proud to be part of it and can't wait to see what's next.
0: Well, you know, we're so glad and you know grateful for your time here today, Tony. Because I think you know I, I I can seldom think of any other individual who who could have given us so much insight into just like you know everything we've gone into, whether it's culture, trends, techniques, you know, science behind it all. It's been wonderful. It, it has been, as I said earlier in the episode, a true one for the vodka lovers. Maybe we've maybe we've converted some folks today. Who knows? Well, like I said. The great thing about vodka
1: is experiencing it and understanding the nuances and the subtleties and characteristics of each individual vodka. So the fun is in the journey. So let's uh, raise our glass and have a glass of vodka. Happiness.
0: Cheers. Cheers to happiness. Thanks for listening to the Cocktail College podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, Go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seasai, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin, editor-in-chief Joanna Shirino, and art director Danielle Greenberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. Cocktail College is brought to you by Kettle One Vodka. Certain brands out there, certain vodka brands, want you to believe that these spirits should be flavorless and odorless. And they achieve this profile through multiple runs of distillation in column stills. They actually celebrate this thing. They market it. But you're a discerning drinker, cocktail college listener, aren't you? And you know that vodka should have character, should have subtle character. And that arrives from the base ingredient and the production technique. In the case of Kettle One, we're talking about a wheat base made using a blend or a mix of pot and column still distillation. And what you get there is character, but subtle character, so that it's going to enhance but never overpower your favorite vodka cocktails, your martinis, your Cosmo's. Kettle One stands so firmly behind this production technique that on every single bottle, there's an invitation for you, the drinker, to visit them at their Netherlands distillery. And hey, why wouldn't they? They've only got 330 years family distilling experience right there. So it's understandable that they back themselves. And you should back them too, listener. You know what you should do? You should pick up a bottle and head over to kettleone.com to learn more.